Section 11 of The Call of the Canyon by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 6, Part 1. If spring came at all to Oak Creek Canyon, it warmed in the summer before Carly had time to languish with the fever characteristic of early June in the east. As if by magic, it seemed the green grass sprang up, the green buds opened into leaves, the bluebells and primroses bloomed. The apple and peach blossoms burst exquisitely white and pink against the blue sky. Oak Creek fell to a transparent, beautiful brook, leisurely eddying in the stone-walled nooks, hurrying with murmur and babble over the little falls. The mornings broke clear and fragrantly cool. The noon hours seemed to lag under a hot sun. The nights fell like dark mantles from the melancholy star-sown sky. Carly had stubbornly kept on riding and climbing until she killed her secret doubt that she was really a thoroughbred, until she satisfied her own insistent vanity that she could train to a point where this outdoor life was not too much for her strength. She lost flesh despite increase of appetite. She lost her pallor for a complexion of gold-brown she knew her eastern friends would admire. She wore out the blisters and aches and pains. She found herself growing firmer of muscle, lither of line, deeper of chest. And in addition to these physical manifestations, there were subtle intimations of a delight in a freedom of body she had never before known, an exhilaration in action that made her hot and made her breathe, of a sloughing off of numberless petty and fussy and luxurious little superficialities which she had supposed were necessary to her happiness. What she had undertaken in vain conquest of Glenn's pride and Flo Hutter's western tolerance she had found to be a boomerang. She had won Glenn's admiration. She had won the western girl's recognition. But her passionate, stubborn desire had been ignoble, and was proved so by the rebound of her achievement, coming home to her with a sweetness she had not the courage to accept. She forced it from her, this West, with its rawness, its ruggedness, she hated. Nevertheless, the June days passed, growing dreamily swift, growing more incomprehensively full, and still she had not broached to Glenn the main object of her visit, to take him back East. Yet a little while longer. She hated his work, and had not talked of that. Yet an honest consciousness told her that as time flew by, she feared more and more to tell him that he was wasting his life there and that she could not bear it. Still, was he wasting it? Once in a while, a timid and unfamiliar Carly Birch voiced a pregnant query. Perhaps what held Carly back most was the happiness she achieved in her walks and rides with Glenn. She lingered because of them. Every day she loved him more, and yet there was something. Was it in her or in him? She had a woman's assurance of his love, and sometimes she caught her breath. So sweet and strong was the tumultuous emotion it stirred. She preferred to enjoy while she could, to dream instead of think, but it was not possible to hold a blank, dreamy, lulled consciousness all the time. Thought would return, and not always could she drive away a feeling that Glenn would never be her slave. She divined something in his mind that kept him gentle and kindly, restrained always, sometimes melancholy and aloof. 
as if he were an impassive destiny waiting for the iron consequences he knew inevitably must fall what was this that he knew which she did not know the idea haunted her perhaps it was that which compelled her to use all her woman's wiles and charms on glenn still though it thrilled her to see she made him love her more as the days passed she could not blind herself to the truth that no softness or allurement of hers changed the strange restraint in him how that baffled her was it resistance or knowledge or nobility or doubt flo hutter's twentieth birthday came along the middle of june and all the neighbors and range hands for miles around were invited to celebrate it for the second time during her visit carley put on the white gown that had made flo gasp with delight and had stunned mrs hutter and had brought a reluctant compliment from glenn carley liked to create a sensation what were exquisite and expensive gowns for if not that it was twilight on this particular june night when she was ready to go downstairs and she tarried a while on the long porch the evening star so lonely and radiant so cold and passionless in a dusky blue had become an object she waited for and watched the same as she had come to love the dreaming murmuring melody of the waterfall she lingered there what had the sights and sounds and smells of this wild canyon come to mean to her she could not say but they had changed her immeasurably her soft slippers made no sound on the porch and as she turned the corner of the house where shadows hovered thick she heard lee stanton's voice but flo you loved me before kilbourne came the content the pathos of his voice chained carley to the spot some situations like fate were beyond resisting sure i did replied flo dreamily this was the voice of a girl who was being confronted by happy and sad thoughts on her birthday don't you love me still he asked huskily why of course lee i don't change she said but then why there for a moment his utterance or courage failed lee do you want the honest-to-god's truth i reckon i do well i love you just as i always did replied flo earnestly but lee i love him more than you or anybody my heaven flo you'll ruin us all he exclaimed hoarsely no i won't either you can't say i'm not level-headed i hated to tell you this lee but you made me flo you love me and him two men queried stanton incredulously i sure do she drawled with a soft laugh and it's no fun reckon i don't cut much of a figure alongside kilbourne said stanton disconsolately lee you could stand alongside any man replied flo eloquently you're western and you're steady and loyal and you'll well some day you'll be like dad could i say more but lee this man is different he is wonderful i can't explain it but i feel it he has been through hell's fire oh will i ever forget his ravings when he lay so ill he means more to me than just one man he's american you're american too lee and you trained to be a soldier and you would have made a grand one if i know old arizona but you were not called to france glenn kilbourne went god only knows what that means but he went and there's the difference i saw the wreck of him i did a little to save his life and his mind i wouldn't be an american girl if i didn't love him oh lee can't you understand i reckon so i'm not begrudging glenn what what you care i'm only afraid i'll lose you 
I never promised to marry you, did I? Not in words, but kisses ought to. Yes, kisses mean a lot, she replied, and so far I stand committed. I suppose I'll marry you some day and be blamed lucky. I'll be happy to. Don't you overlook that hunch. You needn't worry. Glenn is in love with Carly. She's beautiful, rich, and of his class. How could he ever see me? Flo, you can never tell, replied Stanton thoughtfully. I didn't like her at first, but I'm coming round. The thing is, Flo, does she love him as you love him? Oh, I think so. I hope so, answered Flo, as if in distress. I'm not so sure, but then I can't savvy her. Lord knows I hope so, too. If she doesn't, if she goes back east and leaves him here, I reckon my case. Hush. I know she's out here to take him back. Let's go downstairs now. Oh, wait, Flo, he begged. What's your hurry? Come, give me a... There, that's all you get, birthday or no birthday, replied Flo gaily. Carly heard the soft kiss and Stanton's deep breath and then footsteps as they walked away in the gloom toward the stairway. Carly leaned against the log wall. She felt the rough wood, smelled the rusty pine rosin. Her other hand pressed her bosom, where her heart beat with unwanted vigor. Footsteps and voices sounded beneath her. Twilight had deepened in the night. The low murmur of the waterfall and the babble of the brook floated to her strained ears. Listeners never heard good of themselves, but Stanton's subtle doubt of any depth to her, though it hurt, was not so conflicting as the ringing truth of Flo Hutter's love for Glenn. This unsought knowledge powerfully affected Carly. She was forewarned and forearmed now. It saddened her, yet did not lessen her confidence in her hold on Glenn. But it stirred to perplexing pitch her curiosity in regard to the mystery that seemed to cling round Glenn's transformation of character. This Western girl really knew more about Glenn than his fiancée knew. Carly suffered a humiliating shock when she realized that she had been thinking of herself, of her love, her life, her needs, her wants instead of Glenn's. It took no keen intelligence or insight into human nature to see that Glenn needed her more than she needed him. Thus, unwantonly stirred and upset and flung back upon pride of herself, Carly went downstairs to meet the assembled company. And never had she shown to greater contrast, never had circumstance and state of mind contrived to make her so radiant and gay and unbending. She heard many remarks not intended for her far-reaching ears. An old grizzled Westerner remarked to Hutter, Well, she's sure an unbroken filly. Another of the company, a woman, remarked, Sweet and pretty as a columbine, but I'd like her better if she was dressed decent. A gaunt range rider, who stood with others at the porch door, looking on, asked a comrade, Do you reckon that's the style back east? To which the other replied, Maybe, but I'd gamble they're short on silk back east, and likewise sheriffs. Carly received some meat of gratification out of the sensation she created, but she did not carry her craving for it to the point of overshadowing flow. On the contrary, she contrived to have Flo share the attention she received. She taught Flo to dance the foxtrot and got Glenn to dance with her. Then she taught it to Lee Stanton. And when Lee danced with Flo, to the infinite wonder and delight of the onlookers, Carly experienced her first sincere enjoyment of the evening. Her moment came when she danced with Glenn. 
It reminded her of days long past and which she wanted to return again. Despite war tramping and western labors, Glenn retained something of his old grace and lightness, but just to dance with him was enough to swell her heart, and for once she grew oblivious to the spectators. Glenn, would you like to go to the plaza with me again and dance between dinner courses as we used to? she whispered up to him. Sure I would, unless Morrison knew you were to be there, he replied. Glenn, I would not even see him. Any old time you wouldn't see Morrison, he exclaimed half mockingly. His doubt, his tone grated upon her. Pressing closer to him, she said, Come back and I'll prove it. But he laughed and had no answer for her. At her own daring words, Carly's heart had leaped to her lips. If he had responded, even teasingly, she could have burst out with her longing to take him back. But silence inhibited her, and the moment passed. At the end of that dance, Hutter claimed Glenn in the interest of neighboring sheepmen, and Carly, crossing the big living room alone, passed close to one of the porch doors. Someone, indistinct in the shadow, spoke to her in low voice. Hello, pretty eyes. Carly felt a little cold shock go tingling through her, but she gave no sign that she had heard. She recognized the voice and also the epithet. Passing to the other side of the room and joining the company there, Carly presently took a casual glance at the door. Several men were lounging there. One of them was the sheep dipper, Hayes Ruff. His bold eyes were on her now and his coarse face wore a slight, meaning smile, as if he understood something about her that was secret to others. Carly dropped her eyes, but she could not shake off the feeling that wherever she moved, this man's gaze followed her. The unpleasantness of this incident would have been nothing to Carly had she at once forgotten it. Most unaccountably, however, she could not make herself unaware of this ruffian's attention. It did no good for her to argue that she was merely the cynosure of all eyes. This rough's tone and look possessed something heretofore unknown to Carly. Once she was tempted to tell Glenn, but that would only cause a fight, so she kept her counsel. She danced again and helped Flo entertain her guests, and passed the door often, and once stood before it deliberately with all the strange and contrary impulse so inscrutable in a woman, and never for a moment wholly lost the sense of the man's boldness. It dawned upon her at length that the singular thing about this boldness was its difference from any which had ever before affronted her. The fool's smile meant that he thought she saw his attention, and, understanding it perfectly, had secret delight in it. Many and various had been the masculine egotisms which had come under her observation. But quite beyond Carly was this brawny sheep-dipper. Hayes rough. Once the party broke up and the guests had departed, she instantly forgot both man and incident. Next day, late in the afternoon, when Carly came out on the porch, she was hailed by Flo, who had just ridden in from down the canyon. Hey, Carly, come down. I sure have something to tell you, she called. Carly did not use any time pattering down the rude porch stairway. Flo was dusty and hot, and her chaps carried the unmistakable scent of sheep dip. Been over to Ryan's camp, and sure rode hard to beat Glenn home, drawled Flo. Why? queried Carly, eagerly. Reckon I wanted to tell you something Glenn swore he wouldn't let me tell. 
He makes me tired. He thinks you can't stand things. Oh, has he been hurt? He's skinned and bruised up some, but I reckon he's not hurt. Flo, what happened? demanded Carly anxiously. Carly, do you know Glenn can fight like the devil? asked Flo. No, I don't, but I remember he used to be athletic. Flo, you make me nervous. Did Glenn fight? I reckon he did, drawled Flo. With whom? Nobody else but that big hombre, Hayes Ruff. Oh, gasped Carly with a violent start. That, that ruffian? Flo, did you see? Were you there? I sure was, and next to a horse race I like a fight, replied the western girl. Carly, why didn't you tell me Hayes Ruff insulted you last night? Why, Flo, he only said, hello, pretty eyes, and I let it pass, said Carly lamely. You never want to let anything pass out west, because next time you'll get worse. This turn your other cheek doesn't go in Arizona. But we sure thought Ruff said worse than that, though from him that's a plenty. How did you know? Well, Charlie told it. He was standing out here by the door last night, and he heard Ruff speak to you. Charlie thinks a heap of you, and I reckon he hates Ruff. Besides, Charlie stretches things. He sure riled Glenn. And I want to say, my dear, you missed the best thing that's happened since you got here. Hurry, tell me, begged Carly, feeling the blood come to her face. I rode over to Ryan's place for Dad, and when I got there, I knew nothing about what Ruff said to you, began Flo, and she took hold of Carly's hand. Neither did Dad. You see, Glenn hadn't got there yet. Well, just as the men finished dipping a bunch of sheep, Glenn came riding down, lickety-cut. Now what the hell's wrong with Glenn, said Dad, getting up from where we sat. Sure I knew Glenn was mad, though I never before saw him that way. He looked sort of grim and black. Well, he rode right down on us and piled off. Dad yelled at him, and so did I. But Glenn made for the sheep pen. You know where we watched Hayes Ruff and Lorenzo slinging the sheep into the dip? Ruff was just about to climb over the fence when Glenn leaped up on it. Say, Ruff, he said, sort of hard. Charlie and Ben tell me they heard you speak disrespectfully to Miss Birch last night. Dad and I ran to the fence, but before we could catch hold of Glenn, he jumped down into the pen. I'm not caring much for what them herders say, replied Ruff. Do you deny it, demanded Glenn. Ain't denying nothing, Kilborn, growled Ruff. I might argue against me being disrespectful. That's a matter of opinion. You'll apologize for speaking to Miss Birch, or I'll beat you up and have Hutter fire you. Well, Kilborn, I never eat my words, replied Ruff. Then Glenn knocked him flat. You ought to have heard that crack. Sounded like Charlie hitting a steer with a club. Dad yelled, Look out, Glenn, he packs a gun. Ruff got up mad clear through, I reckon. Then they mixed it. Ruff got in some swings, but he couldn't reach Glenn's face. And Glenn battered him right and left, every time in his ugly mug. Ruff got all bloody, and he cussed something awful. Glenn beat him against the fence, and then we all saw Ruff reach for a gun or knife. All the men yelled, and sure I screamed. But Glenn saw as much as we saw. He got fiercer. He beat Ruff down to his knees and swung on him hard. Deliberately knocked Ruff into the dip ditch. What a splash! It wet all of us. Ruff went out of sight. Then he rolled up like a huge hog. We were all scared now. That dip's rank poison, you know. Reckon Ruff knew that. He floundered along and crawled up at the end. 
Anyone could see that he had mouth and eyes tight shut. He began to grope and feel around, trying to find the way to the pond. One of the men led him out. It was great to see him wade in the water and wallow and souse his head under. When he came out, the men got in front of him and stopped him. He sure looked bad, and Glenn called to him, Rough, that sheep dip won't go through your tough hide, but a bullet will. Not long after this incident, Carly started out on her usual afternoon ride, having arranged with Glenn to meet her on his return from work. Toward the end of June, Carly had advanced in her horsemanship to a point where Flo lent her one of her own mustangs. This change might not have all to do with a wonderful difference in riding, but it seemed so to Carly. There was as much difference in horses as in people. This mustang she had ridden of late was of Navajo stock, but he had been born and raised and broken at Oak Creek. Carly had not yet discovered any objection on his part to do as she wanted him to do. He liked what she liked, and most of all he liked to go. His color resembled a pattern of calico, and in accordance with Western ways, his name was therefore Calico. Left to choose his own gait, Calico always dropped into a gentle pace, which was so easy and comfortable and swinging that Carly never tired of it. Moreover, he did not shy at things lying in the road or rabbits darting from bushes or at the upwhirring of birds. Carly had grown attached to Calico before she realized she was drifting into it. And for Carly to care for anything or anybody was a serious matter, because it did not happen often and it lasted. She was exceedingly tenacious of affection. June had almost passed, and summer lay upon the lonely land. Such perfect and wonderful weather had never before been Carly's experience. The dawns broke cool, fresh, fragrant, sweet and rosy, with a breeze that seemed of heaven rather than earth, and the air seemed tremulously full of the murmur of falling water and the melody of mocking birds. At the solemn noontides, the great white sun glared down hot, so hot that it burned the skin, yet strangely was a pleasant burn. The wanting afternoons were Carly's especial torment, when it seemed the sounds and winds of the day were tiring, and all things were seeking repose, and life must soften to an unthinking happiness. These hours troubled Carly because she wanted them to last, and because she knew for her this changing and transforming time could not last, so long as she did not think she was satisfied. End of chapter 6, part 1